You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, and our production assistant, Daniel Tersini, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, men. How are you? We are well. Yeah, awesome. We're, we're doing fine. Great. Great to hear. Today is uh, Shrove Tuesday, Pancake Tuesday, so if you haven't uh, ponied up to the table and had some yeah. pancakes, I hope I, you I get to get do some that. tonight. <laughs> i got to get on that for sure. Well, actually, in, in a few minutes, I'll give you a recipe for some spanking easy pancakes so you don't have to go into the, the batter box and make your own. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> nice. ah, hopefully. Hopefully you like it. I made some actually on the weekend. Our show today is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And uh, do feel free to email us. We are at thh at radiomaria.ca. All of our shows, live or taped, are flipped over into a podcast form. And we are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. You can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. My uh, my little doggy, I can't remember if I brought this up a year or so ago or not, but my little dog Harley is in for operation number two on his right leg. He um, has blown out his um, cruciate ligament. So that, oh, dear. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I don't know if, I can't remember if I shared this lovely surgery with you last time, but uh, yeah, we actually thought that he had damaged his other, his, his already um, damaged leg, but it mm-hmm. turns out that he's damaged the new leg. So as we uh, speak right here live, I'm waiting for a phone call from the vet. Uh, circumstance has it. We had to just drop him off this morning. And uh, so that's a little bit on my mind this morning, thinking about my, my little doggy. So I hope he does well and uh, we're in for a long recovery as we were last time. So oddly enough, it's right around the same time of year. So here's to Harley. Hope everything goes well for him this morning. He'll be on my mind. Last week's show on autoimmunity with Dr. Tom O'Brien is up and ready for you to listen to. This was a very, very informative podcast. Great for all of you to listen to. Autoimmunity is something that... um, is quite rampant in chronic disease world, and uh, he is a very, very informative speaker, and uh, do listen to the podcast. You will get a lot out of it. So as I mentioned a second ago, today is Pancake Tuesday, or Shrove Tuesday, as it also is known by. And Shrove Tuesday is a Christian festival that marks the start of Lent. So for Catholics, um, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, and that is the beginning of our Lenten season. And um, Shrove Tuesday is, is, is the indicator of that to come. It is a religious, Shrove Tuesday is a religious observance in the uh, Christian liturgical calendar that begins, as I just mentioned, the um, Lent, Ash Wednesday, and it ends approximately six weeks later, uh, just before Easter Sunday. So that's Lent. Traditionally, Shrove Tuesday is associated with pancakes being eaten. And the reason for this was that it was the last chance to eat rich food before Lent and an opportunity to use up all of the luxury foods such as fat, butter, and eggs, which might go um, by the wayside during um, the Lenten season when tradition is to to give up something uh, during this time. Although it always falls on a Tuesday, the exact date of Pancake Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday changes from year to year, but it is always 47 days before Easter, and this means that it's possible for Pancake Day to be any time between the 3rd of February and the 9th of March. 
In the United uh, Kingdom, Ireland, and Australia, the celebration is most often called Pancake Day, Shrove Tuesday, or Pancake Tuesday. In France and in French-speaking and Catholic communities of the United States, they refer refer to it as Shrove Tuesday, and in some places also as Mardi Gras, which is called Fat Tuesday. So there you go, just a little bit of history behind um, behind our day today. And I just wanted to give you a very simple recipe, very healthy recipe, if you want to partake in some pancakes today, if you haven't already done so. Um, very simple, very, very, very simple. You take one banana, and well, this will serve two people, okay. unless you're really, really hungry, then this is just for one. <laughs> so take one banana. Fairly ripe, doesn't have to be really brownie. As long as you can mash it with your fork, you'll be uh, able to do this. Take two eggs, and then add an eighth of a teaspoon of baking powder. Mix it all up. Get your fry pan nice and hot with some butter, and proceed to make them just as you would regular pancakes. They're easy. They are healthy for you. Um At that point, if you go on and add syrup and icing sugar, then we're sort of going down that slippery slope. But at this point... Defeating the purpose, Defeating the purpose, yeah. What you can do, uh, really something if you really are trying to stay on that that healthy path, is to make a um, uh, a syrup, if you want to call it, out of berries, which is really nice. And you just add the berries to a pan, uh, a little sauce pot, and just put a touch of sugar, just a little bit to sort of bring things out. And you mash the berries down, get the juices going. And it's really nice uh, sauce to put on top of your pancakes, uh, or you can actually just put the whole berries right into the pancake mix and make them as is. It's almost like a jam. Really. Almost like a jam you're putting on top. Yes, you could do a chia jam as well. I think I've given that recipe before. Lots of different ways that you can use them. And um, if you wanted to add a little bit of um, like a non-dairy milk, you can flatten them right out there and make sort of a crepe. So just a little... Bit of something to get you uh, to get you into the spirit of Pancake Tuesday, and again tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, and then our Lenten season. On to today's show. I'm, uh, you know, I've I read a lot of things in preparation for the show, also uh, for my practice, and I came across an article which highlights um, Doctor uh, Doctor. Here we go, Chef Tom French. He's not a doctor, uh, Chef Tom French. He aligns a lot with me in his ideology. He is about bringing meaning around the table, about um, understanding the value of food beyond its nutrients. And when I read the article, I thought this is someone that I would like to meet and have on the show because I am a big proponent, of course, of nutrition and getting proper nutrients into your body. But I am also a huge proponent of the social aspect of eating, which I find is as important as the nutrients that are going into our meal. So a bit about Chef Tom French. He is a seasoned chef, a consultant, and trainer with over 40 years of professional food service experience. He is a founding team member of Seattle-based Fair Start, a nationally recognized model for job training homeless individuals in culinary arts. Chef Tom's humanitarian efforts include, and there are many, a salmon recovery project in the Kamchatka, Russia area to benefit abandoned children's shelters, and the Heart of America bus tour just after 9-11. This tour fostered community communications by sharing meals at fire stations, mosques, churches, community centers, and public forums. Chef Tom served on the City of Seattle's Health Services Advisory Committee for three years and has been the recipient of the U.S. Mayor's Anti-Hunger Award. In 2005, he was named one of seven culinary architects for Puget Sound. I think you'll have to correct me on that. I would pronounce it Puget Sound by Seattle Magazine, noted as a chef of social conscience. As executive director of Experience Food Project for the past 12 years, he has worked to lead a culture change in school meal programs in the United States. He is a member of the School Nutrition Association Chef's Table and served on the White House Chef's Move to Schools National Outreach Committee. He has been a trainer and consultant for the National Food Service Management Institute. Previous work includes programs designed Programs, design, staff training, food education, and curriculum for the Muckleshoot Tribe, Boys and Girls Clubs, 
City of Seattle Parks, excuse me, and Recreation, Earth Corps, YMCA, and many others. Today, he is responsible for food and nutrition programs at Mary's Place in Seattle, where he has implemented food safety and logistics protocols to serve over 3,000 meals each day at eight Mary's Place shelter locations and developed innovative pantry box and food education programs to help struggling families stay successfully housed. Our discussion points today include the importance of food beyond its nutrients, why it is so important to share meals around the dinner table, and the importance of teaching children how to eat well. We will be back with Chef Tom after our break. see was the struggle haunted by ghosts that lived in my past bound up in shackles of all my failures one prisoner and say to me son stop fighting a fight it's already been won and I am redeemed you set me free so I'll shake off these heavy chains and wipe I'm not who I used to be I am redeemed I'm redeemed All my life I have been called unworthy Named by the voice of my shame and regret But when I hear you whisper Child, lift up your head I remember, oh God You're not done with me yet And I am redeemed You said
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show is live today. If you'd like to call in, our number is 416-245-1534. And again, please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Health Hub RMC. Good morning, Chef Tom. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have uh, an alignment, and when we spoke earlier, uh, it's it's uh, you bring to life so many things that I think are so vital and missing in our world today, and we'll get into definitely all of them. But uh, what I'd like to do is sort of give everyone a background about you. How did you get into cooking? Did you own your own restaurant? What are you doing with that sort of aspect of your life? Yeah, well, thank you for for your interest in that. Um, my 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 roots, if you will, actually go back to my family. I was I was raised in the rural south of the United States, and um, after World War II, my grandparents opened a what would be referred to then as a dirt floor roadhouse, the intersection of two roads, um, as a way to keep our family farm viable. I mean, they they saw that as a a way to to produce income. And we were very fortunate as children. We had a great-grandmother in our home until she died. And um, everything about our family revolved around food, the business of food, growing food, making food, preserving food, eating together. And so that really, I think, was sort of the foundational experience for me. Um, I I think it's rare in in today's culture to have multiple generations uh, actually living in the home and being a vital part of the family. And so my, my interest in cooking um, started with my great-grandmother. Um, I always say she was, a, she was an organic farmer but didn't know it. Mm-hmm. She was a naturopath but didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that um, ailed you had a food remedy and often involving uh, vinegar and all the things, um, the things of have. that nature. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so the joke around the house is my cousins and I were the only kids that went to school smelling like salad all the time. <laughs> yeah. So um, whatever that was wrong with you, it could be cured with some food uh, poultice or remedy or intake or what have you. So that really, you know, set the foundation for the rest of my life, I think. And um, And I also think it's uh, it was a really unique experience to, to, in the course of one lifetime, to sort of witness the fading of a traditional agrarian system to a more uh, efficient, if you want to call it that, sort of processed food, fast food, etc. And so that, uh, I think the experience of just sort of watching that happen, we'll never go back to that completely, uh, I don't think. Um so that was the foundation, and then on to, I was a professional chef in New Orleans for 22 years, and I uh, worked in the hotel industry and restaurants, and uh, opened a few restaurants along the way in life, and then 20-some-odd years ago, moved to Whidbey Island, and uh, up in Washington, in Puget Sound, even though I love the way you say okay. Puget Sound. I'm doing <laughs> the, the Canadian-French sort of Puget. <laughs> yeah. So Puget. Um, so that's, that's right. Okay. So that's my home now, and uh, for the last twenty some odd years, I've really immersed myself in social justice issues related to food, whether it's working with disadvantaged populations, uh, people who are suffering from hunger or malnutrition. Uh, really trying always to look at systemic issues and how do we uh, address these things? Because you know, at the end of the day. Eating is an integral part of the human experience on the planet. And so, uh, you know, access to that, healthy, nutritious food, uh, meeting your cultural requirements. And then to your point, Kathy, the, the whole uh, social context that really builds on our DNA around our experiences of food at the table and sharing food with friends and family. So that's really the core of my work. And again, it just goes back to uh, really my early childhood and being influenced by a great-grandmother. Did you see a great need in the community that you were in? I mean, your your experiences are not just about... Um about around the table, which I want to, I do want to get into the experience food project. I mean, you, you have gone out in so many different directions and you've even worked in Russia. 
So uh, mm-hmm. are you seeking out these things or are people finding you? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, some some come to me. The project in Russia came to me um, because of some food recovery work that I had done uh, in Seattle. I was approached by a group of people that were working in Kamchatka, Russia, which at that time was a, a basically a secret city in Russia. It was it's on the uh, near the Siberian Sea. Um, it was the uh, site of one of the largest Russian nuclear submarine bases. Um, but it's also just a hop, skip, and jump from Alaska through the Aleutian Islands. And I went over there because someone actually showed me a picture of over 30,000 uh, pounds of salmon that had been um, abandoned on a beach because they are able to process the roe for sale in the Asian market, but the salmon itself um, pretty much goes to waste. And over the course of a year, I think it was something like 3.1 million pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but every project that I get in, and, and the, the, the problem there was, there was there's no infrastructure. So they had no gas, no roads, no refrigeration. And, um, you know, I was simply asked to come, and I did. And, of course, any time I do a project, I always look for the social benefit and, and who can we specifically be of assistance to in that community. And we were directed to a, uh, a group of Russian Orthodox nuns who were running uh, shelters for abandoned children. And I think the, the distinction is in Russia, if you're orphaned, you become a ward of the state. If you're an abandoned child, you have no safety net. There are no social services. So this is all done in the private religious sector. And I was so struck by the compassion and the, the, the uh, just the, the, the sense of, of, of giving of themselves by the sisters um, to these children who just really needed meaning and purpose. And I have to be honest, it was the first time I can say that I honestly came face to face with what I would call true hunger, mm-hmm. uh, which are children who um, are really malnourished. Uh, they have not been cared for as infants. Uh, a lot of times they're coming in right off the street. And so we built this program of salmon recovery with the idea of bringing that product back to the U.S. and selling it through a uh, organization that we started called the Chefs Alliance for Social Action. And so chefs would buy the salmon and we would uh, put the money towards the operating costs and shipping and production. But we also committed uh, 20% of all proceeds back to the abandoned children's shelter just based on the, the need that I saw there and um, just the way these children then specifically touched my heart. And um, I think it was, um, yeah, it was a real gift. That's all I can say. It was, it fell into my lap. We got involved. It was a true gift. And, um, you know, the, the, the one story that sticks out about that whole experience was that when it came time to eat, and they, by the way, insisted that we stay and have a meal. And, um, you know, as the guests, we were given the largest portion and the most choice pieces of uh, vegetable or meat that were in this very, very meager stew. And that just had a really profound and deep impact on me. I actually went back to my to the place where I was staying, and I was just unable to even move for a day. I was so struck by uh, the lack of scarcity and yet by the generosity of people and their insistence that we join them in sharing their meal. So... You know, these are the things that really matter in life, and and I think that um, when you when you see that, and then you come back, <clears throat> excuse me, into the the Western culture here, and you see all of the resources that we have, and the the capacities, and transportation, and storage, and food recovery, it just has for me just to double down on the effort to really make sure that people have universal access to get healthy food. Beautiful. You know, you leave yourself open to these things, and I think they're they're gifted to you for a reason. Um, now, we're actually, it was, it's a beautiful story, and I want to make sure that I get this other uh, project that you spoke to me about that uh, that I've found very interesting was the White House Chef's Table Move to School National mm-hmm. Outreach um, mm-hmm. Committee, and you were telling mm-hmm. me that you worked with Michelle Obama on that one. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that, that's very interesting. She's very much an activist as well. Can you tell us about that program? Yeah, it was, um, so we, so, so Experience Food Project actually, um, as a result of many other projects that I do, I'm always looking for where, where is the leverage point here and where, 
where would you create a real culture change if you could find ways to address this? And so at some point around 2007, um, I determined that working in the public school system where you would have the ability to influence uh, people's thinking and learning at such an early stage would be a great platform to work from. And so we started out just doing uh, classroom food-based enrichment programs uh, for children that are age-appropriate. So we had a chef in the classroom program, a program called Taste, Talk, and Try. Uh, so my effort there was to really engage children at an early age and being more curious about food and uh, learning where food comes from and then also kind of sharing the experience of food together. And during that time frame, when we were just getting that off the ground, um, you know, the national dialogue in the United States really turned towards obesity and health, and specifically through uh, Michelle Obama's efforts, really started to focus on healthy eating in schools. So I spent um, a number of years, and again, you know, to your point of being gifted with these experiences, um, we actually had a, a, a single donor who was a private client of mine. Um, step up and offer to fund the pilot project. So I was able to really focus my attention 100% of the time on uh, school food, school food systems, understanding opportunities and barriers, looking at how do you weave curriculum into existing curriculum, what are the nuts and bolts of the food system, where does the food come from, who supplies it, how much does it cost, all of those things. And uh, in that uh, process, as I noted, the national dialogue had shifted quite a bit, and the uh, School Nutrition Association started a program called Chef's Table, and then uh, Michelle Obama got involved with the garden programs and really uh, focused the sh shifted the focus to taking a look at working within the existing regulatory process. Because in the U.S., the school meal programs are heavily regulated and monitored. Um, really taking a look at um, behavior and linkage to uh, the nutritional content of the food being served, how much time is being provided to children uh, to socialize and eat food. Are we doing things like uh, recess before lunch so kids can work off energy? And so it was a very dynamic program and um, uh, was as long as as that administration was in place and supporting it, um, the program did quite well. And my role as an outreach committee member was to try and engage the entire culinary community across the United States, not alone, of course, with a team of people, um, to really um, sort of foster and encourage the culinary community to take a stand and be involved and volunteer time and effort and energy. And I, and I think we made some significant progress. Unfortunately, um, as administrations change, there just hasn't been that level of focus on, on a lot of the good work that was done. But I'm hopeful as we go forward in the future that we can build on that work um, in years to come. Well, you know, just from the, the limited things that you've spoken here about in the last 15 minutes, I am sure, uh, as I said before, you leave yourself open to things like that. You will be, you will be called upon to uh, spread um, your, your good will in other directions, even if it's not within this program. You have an, a few other programs that you're also with, and we'll talk about them after the break, and also talk about the importance of sitting around the table. So we'll be back in a few minutes, everybody. Why is there a war between us? Are you not my brother? Are you not my sister? Something's gotta change Stood by you today Why is there a wall between us? Are you not my sister? Are you not my brother? Well, something's gotta change I confess that I've been blind Open up this heart of mine Show me how to love 
voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Chef Tom French, a true inspiration and founder of the Experience Food Project. Tom, I want to talk about um, something we, we touched upon at the beginning of the show, the importance of sitting around a table to eat a meal. Um, in modern times, as you, as you mentioned, we, we can't go back, but we have to be able to maintain health in the present. So how do you get this across to people in, in your experience uh, food project? Yeah, that's um, that's been a really interesting part of this. You know, it's sort of I look at it as a puzzle, um, and and you know what are some of the corner pieces, right? And one of them is not to lose the value and importance of being at the table together. I think we all recognize that the the social dynamics of family makeup and communities are changing rather dramatically everywhere. Uh, and so I, I, I know that, um, at least in my own experience as a child, that that was uh, a critical and crucial part of, um, as I always refer to it, sort of my food DNA and um, my ability and capacity to, to enjoy and share food with people. And I worry a lot about the fact that we just keep moving further and further away from um, really allocating that and integrating that time into family life. And I have even done workshops for uh, parent-teacher associations in the U.S. where parents will come to the table and say, well, how do we do it? And I, my my first reaction to that was sort of like, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. Like, what do you mean, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were, uh, yeah, like, we're really busy. I have three kids. They're in soccer. They're in plays. They're in this. We're often eating on the run in the car. And, you know, uh, my, my response was that you need, you need to carve out at least three days, three nights a week, um, when everything does stop and the phones go down and, um, you are sitting together as a family, even if it's slightly uncomfortable in the beginning, 
but just to to really start to discipline yourself to do that. The, the dividend and the payoff and the benefits to the other human beings at the table may not be apparent for years to come. Um, but I also know that in many, many situations, um, we've been able to foster positive dialogue by bringing people together around the table um, through things like, for instance, you mentioned earlier, the Heart of America bus tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every um, project that I do, I try to find that core group of people and we make a commitment to eat together on multiple occasions and to really have honest, open, and heartfelt dialogue. And even with the families that I work with now, which is primarily a homeless population in in Seattle or large families that are in transition, um, to really encourage them, even in the shelter environment, don't lose touch with that, to really make that time. And so whatever I do in terms of program development, I try to build that piece in. And that's Mary's Place, the homeless shelters? That's Mary's Place. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you're dealing a lot with them. And you're trying to get them to eat as a community? Is that what you're saying? We do have them eat as a community. We have meal times and we have protocols around the meals and people helping with uh, participating in the meals and serving and helping to clean up and all of those things. Um, even though we do produce the food out of one central kitchen, um, we are really developing some very interesting outreach opportunities for families. Uh, one of the things that we do is help families remain food secure after we get them back into housing. Uh, by providing pantry boxes and kitchen starter kits. So every step of the way, we try to build on that sort of initial experience and and saying, especially in a difficult and challenging time, even more so you want to carve out that special time to sit together as a family and have an opportunity to dialogue and hear each other out and, and just be together. Well, we make choices, don't we, to what we, we what we want to be involved mm-hmm. in. And as with anything, if it's important to you, you will make that choice to do this. And Absolutely. You, you approach things one way, and I'm approaching things uh, sort of at the other end of the table, if you might say, uh, for the mm-hmm. same for the same reason. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, even if if you're if you have to do a takeout meal, eating a takeout meal around the table mm-hmm. is absolutely is very, very important. Um, you know, just sitting around, I was, I was trying to think of, uh, you know, your approach and my approach and why we sort of resonate together. When I'm looking at and I'm talking to people about this, I'm saying you sit down at a table and it lessens your stress. It brings you back to your roots. But it even goes more physically that when you're down at a table, you're sitting around a table and you're talking and you're chatting and you're laughing, you're digesting better. You're Absolutely. taking your time with your food, and what what you're doing is you're bringing it all together. And whether people, you know, are intuitively linking what you're doing to health benefits, there is certainly health benefits to doing this. Have Have you had one instance where you have really been um, proud of of an experience, or you've really been touched by an experience where you've been able to really? really connect with a group and see results from what you're doing? Yes, it's a funny one um, because we, we had a pilot project that we were doing with a school district when I first started this work. And we went to the school district uh, with, with private donor money. And I said, look, we have, an, we have an idea about how we might create a culture change um, in your community uh, around food and around uh, particularly in the school environment. I've always been perplexed. You know, the, 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 the true, you know, definition of education is learning, right? Learning how to do things differently, mm-hmm. <laughs> learning new things. And, and I was really struck by how fixed the food system was in schools and how uh, sort of dumbed down it was at the time. And so we offered the school district, uh, we guaranteed them a no loss of revenue if we could um, have, number one, we wanted to take control of the food service program and serve the kinds of food that we felt like uh, would be appropriate and that children would like. Um, We wanted access to the classroom so we could integrate um, food education in in a multidisciplinary manner. And then we wanted to be an active participant in the community by bringing people into uh, the food program through things like, for instance, we would do a once a month community dinner where the entire community was invited to, to come to the school and share a meal. And we had uh, a lot of success with, number one, changing the food 
that was being served uh, and making it more fresh, wholesome, and nutritious. And uh, a lot of the old myths were busted, which is children won't like that, children won't eat that. And what I found was children actually have a natural curiosity about food, and when that curiosity is fostered and encouraged, they'll try almost anything. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they have to like it. Um, and we had a very successful integrated education program where a group of high school students, for instance, uh, had me into their social studies class, and they asked, well, who gets to decide what we eat at lunch? And so we took them through the very complex U.S. process of the Child Nutrition Act and the Farm Bill and showed all the linkages. That led to the students asking, well, oh, how are bills created, which eventually led to a legislative session coming to the school and educating kids on how uh, legislation is introduced and policy is made. But the thing that stood out about that program the most was we would go around and ask students and, and say, what in your mind uh, was the most interesting thing about the new food program this year. And I had one young student who was a, a senior in high school, and she she took a moment, and she was very thoughtful, and she pondered, and she looked me straight in the eye, and she said, I really felt respected. Hmm. And that really struck me, because it was not just about, sure, the food tasted good, and it looked good, and it was fun, and we had all these activities, but that it struck a deeper chord with her, which is that she felt that she was respected by the adults in the room, that her opinion mattered, um, that her choices mattered, um, and that it really gave her a uh, sort of new perspective on food as a as in general, but also just that sense of self-worth. So I have many of those stories, but I always say that's the one that really struck me, with me because it was such a personal encounter. Well, that process, I mean, that would need to be started at an early age, would it not? You would want to get the children involved in the Absolutely. kitchen. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and unfortunately, what I take away partly from that story is we no longer, and I myself included, I myself included, in these busy times, um, we're not looking at the kitchen as a place to come and create. We're looking at it as a place to get through quickly, get a meal on the table, and move on to other things. And I think the whole way we approach a meal has been altered and needs to to be thrown back. And when you're talking about dealing with children, you've talked about high school kids, but are you also... um, do you have programs where you're trying to reach out to younger children and get them involved in the kitchen as well? Absolutely. We have, we actually have 13 classroom based food enrichment programs and they're K-12 appropriate. So not all 13 for the same age group, but they're sort of divided equally across the board. Uh, Some are, you know, sort of a K through three model where we're doing really simple things like chefs in the classroom, we have a program called Taste, Talk, and Try where we actually create tasting kits. Mm-hmm. And we do these Taste, Talk, and Tries over the course of a single day or two days. We conduct them in the library at the school where every child cycles through at least once a week. And um, it's a, and, and the librarians are awesome. They set up the, the library with food books and cookbooks and uh, you know, farming and weather and the seeds and you name it. It's really kind of a showcase of, of the library as well. Um, but it really immediately you can see, especially in these younger children, they have no bias. Uh, they have no prejudice uh, about food other than what may have been instilled by their, by their parents at home. Um, and, and they have a natural curiosity. And so we, I'm with you. The, the sooner we start this and uh, of course, you know, this starts with the family, and that's even more important, I think, um, but it should be reinforced in, throughout our education system. Where do you get the funding for all of these projects? Is it all government-funded? No. Um, you know, I have self-funded many projects myself just because I believe in them, so I'll, I spend a, a good bit of time in the for-profit world as well, and so I, I don't always wait for the funding. Uh, to show up in order to take action. But by and large, uh, we've been, I think that we've been able to make enough progress that most of our work these days is fee-for-service, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, but in the early days, we did rely on private donors who were just simply as passionate as I was about these projects and were willing 
to literally put their money where their mouth is. And of course, we in the Seattle area in Puget Sound experienced a very uh, robust high tech boom, um, which created a number of high wealth donors. And so we've been very fortunate. I think to your point earlier, Kathy, when you said, you know, when you're open, these things fall to you, they come to you, they're drawn to you. It took me a long time to figure that out. I always kept wondering, like, how do I end up in these really weird projects? <laughs> and, um, and then after a while, I went, ah, this, this actually, this is the work, and they will come, and I will act. And subsequently, um, and vast majority of the time, the funding comes along. Um, in some instances, it's it's uh, rough go, and then as, as you would think of with anything that's a, a startup or a fresh idea. Um, but, you know, the face of philanthropy has changed quite a bit. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on in the United States on innovation and outcomes, and so less process and more action. Uh, so I've just been really fortunate in that um, I either had the uh, capital investment on my own or I was able to solicit others, and I'm grateful that I've reached a point in my work where it has value to people and they are willing to pay for it. Um, have you seen an impact on children's health as a result of these projects? No question about that. When we were working in public schools, um, immediate, you know, sort of feedback when we, uh, number one, we looked at uh, taking out all high fructose corn syrup out of any of the foods that were being served. Um, we went to the model of more fresh foods. But you have to educate with kids. If they don't recognize something and they've never tasted it, they're probably not going to try it or they're just going to, you know, arbitrarily reject it. But we did see things like reduced incidence of, of behavioral issues and referrals to the principal's office in the early afternoon, for instance. Um, on another note, parents coming back and saying, wow, I'm just like totally blown away. My kid's engaged in the food and when I got you know to the kitchen they already had the lettuce out and they were willing to wash the lettuce so I think those are are small accomplishments but they're big wins because you know you're actually influencing that individual child or that family probably forever absolutely now, this is might be the the toughest question of the whole hour um, what has been or has there been one project that has been most gratifying for you or do you find equal gratification at on different levels? Um, I would say a little bit of both. I, I think the one that was the most gratifying where we, where I felt like we actually did something, even though I can't say that it, um, I don't know what the long-term impact has been. And that was after nine 11, uh, we created something called the Heart of America Bus Tour, where I put together a group of of chefs and poets and writers and musicians, and uh, people got on and off the bus. We left from Seattle the day after Thanksgiving, and we arrived at Ground Zero uh, two days before Christmas Eve. And along the way, going through the country, stopping at uh, fire stations and having dialogue with with firemen and cooking meals together, reaching out to mosques and synagogues and holding community events there. Um, many, interestingly enough, many of the in many of the cities where we uh, made stops, it was actually some of the Catholic churches that opened their doors to the rectory and would house us and have the bus park in their lot. Um, and I think, and then, uh, and then, of course, getting to New York City and working uh, for four days with the Midtown Manhattan Fire Department, which was the first first responders on the scene right after 9/11, and and some of those men literally had not been home uh, since September. But just spending time with them and cooking meals and sharing meals and hearing their thoughts, and um, I felt like we were doing something important, which was to try to foster a dialogue uh, based on hope, uh, based on love, and not based on hatred and rejection and denial. And so I think for me, that was, um, don't hear much about that one, but for me, it was one of the most powerful experiences that we had because I just felt this certain rawness that was available, a certain vulnerability that people were experiencing 
and that they were able to express that the world as we know it has now changed. That's beautiful. You truly are an inspiration. We're pushing up against the clock here. A couple of things left that I want to make sure that we cover. I'd love for you to give us uh, one, two, three tips about getting families back to the table, if you can throw some ideas out there for us. Sure. So um, one of the things that we've been really successful at are what we call talking cards. And, um, you know, there's a lot of those games out there and you can create these yourself. There's no big secret to it. But um, just having a, a little, you know, one of the, the, I said earlier, one of the families said, well, how do we do it? You know, I don't know how to shape and construct our lives in this way. And I said, well, why don't you start with just getting a bowl and everybody throws a little talking point in there. And then each person gets to pick one and you get to speak to that topic or bring it up and offer an opinion and, and really stretch yourself and think outside the box. So that's a sort of an activity based. The other is just simply cooking together and finding something that everybody can agree on and that would like to make as simple as pizza, you know, making the dough because there is that, you know, there's that hour of prolonged rising waiting for the next step and anticipating. And then everybody gets to put what they want on their individual pizza. And so that, that's another really great tip. And I think the other is just to, to be mindful um, of putting that on your calendar and at least, you know, uh, a couple of times a week, make sure that your family is together. And to your point, it doesn't have to be, a, I get it, we're stretched, we're all stretched for time. Um, but even having takeout, but just saying, hey, this is this is a night we're all going to sit together. We're not we're going to put the phones down. Maybe we'll have a movie night or a game night. Um, it's not that hard. It just takes a little bit of effort. Perfect. And if people want to find out more about the Experience Food Project, can you direct us? Do you have a website mm-hmm. or we what do. would that be? Mm-hmm. That would be experiencefoodproject.org. Perfect. You are truly an inspiration to me and many, many others. I really do appreciate you taking the time to be on our show today. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end it here, but thank you for being on our show. Uh, Tom, I, again, really do greatly appreciate it. And everybody, My pleasure, oh, and thank you. Uh, thank you also for your work. I know you're doing some really good work, and particularly with cancer patients, so I have great appreciation for that. Thank you very much. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.